Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Catherine Bates is a postdoctoral researcher and science writer. In her current postdoctoral role, she's working on a project leveraging large-scale cohort data to understand how the type and timing of social adversity during adolescence impacts cognition and brain development. Prior to this, she completed her PhD at UCL, investigating mental imagery abilities in children with and without ADHD. Catherine has also published articles with Bold Expert, a digital platform for learning and development, where she summarizes the evidence behind popular topics in this area. She has worked with educational practitioners in her research role, her science writing, to understand how we close the gap between research and practice to further our knowledge of the science of learning and helping young people thrive. So it's very lovely to have you here. Dr. Bates, how are you? (laughs) I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Well, reading your bio, oh my goodness, there are so many parallels in our passion for bridging the gap between research and real life. So this is very, very exciting. So Catherine, we know you have a vast knowledge of lots of different topics and areas, but today we're very interested in giving you some questions about neurodiversity, neurodevelopmental disorders, and potentially what educators might need to know in this area. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) Okay. So kickstarting our chat. I love this question. What three things do you wish teachers knew about neurodevelopmental disorders? Yeah, so this is a really great question. I think the first thing to think about is that a child with a diagnosis will not always reflect what we know about that diagnosis. So for example, we might expect a child with ADHD to be easily distracted or to be struggling to sit still or focus their attention. But while this is really common in ADHD, Actually, some children with ADHD might be withdrawn. They might not engage in class very much at all. And they might be really focused on one task, but then actually struggle to switch to another. So this is important to keep in mind. The second thing that's kind of tied to this is related to children's symptoms and their cognitive ability. So a child's severity of symptoms can be very different to their cognitive ability, And by this, I mean that some children might have really severe symptoms of a disorder, which can affect their behavior and their motor skills, for example, but they might have very good cognitive ability, or they might have lesser symptoms and poor cognitive ability and vice versa. So this is really important to keep in mind when we look at individual differences in the research, we do really see varied abilities and lots of different types of cognition. So it's really important to understand each individual's strengths and difficulties kind of beyond the label. And I think the third thing that is really important 
for children with neurodevelopmental disorders is their relationship with you, with the teacher. This can really impact their well-being and their learning. So when researching my recent articles for Bold Expert, this was something that just repeatedly came up. So for example, the research has shown that children with neurodevelopmental disorders are more likely to be less close to their teachers and can have conflicts with their teachers. But there's evidence to show, and we know that supportive teacher-student relationships in all children are associated with better outcomes, like social outcomes, academic outcomes. So this is also something important to keep in mind that their relationship with you can be very important. So those are lovely answers. So it's really about how we relate to our pupils and making sure that, you know, all the lovely things that teachers do best, getting to know their pupil is absolutely essential and not being not assume that they're sort of a homogenous group of children with those particular disorders. It is about individuality. It's about understanding and just spending that lovely time with pupils as well. So that's very helpful. Thank you. Second question, Catherine, should the management of anxiety be a top priority for anyone parenting or educating a neurodiverse child? And the reason why we ask this question is in our experience at Tooled Up, you know, we we meet many, many parents. And for those parents who have a child with the neurodiverse condition, it is something they mention a lot. Yeah, yes, I think this is really important to keep in mind. So like the evidence does show that children with neurodevelopmental disorders are more likely to suffer from anxiety and other mental health issues. And limited support, for example, can make this worse and lead to other worse outcomes. So yeah, definitely important to keep in mind and prioritize. You mentioned that this is something that parents kind of talk about a lot. And I think that's also important because Anxiety can be sometimes difficult to spot in children. So, for example, adults, when we're anxious, we might like feel a sense of dread. We might panic and we can talk about this and reflect on this. But sometimes children struggle to pinpoint or explain where those feelings are coming from. So they might complain that they're generally feeling unwell or they might show like uncharacteristic behaviours like clinginess, for example, So, yeah, if we have in mind that this could be a problem for children, then we're maybe more likely to be able to pick up on that. And we might be able to just keep in mind that it might not look how we expect it to look. That's lovely. That's terribly helpful. Thank you. Now, are there any gender differences that you're aware of in common neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly ADHD? So gender differences are a complicated topic. And I think that Jovan Herwigan covered this really well in her recent podcast with you. I won't go into too much detail, but I think in terms of ADHD, the main gender difference to acknowledge in ADHD is the bias in clinical referrals. So girls are much less likely to be referred for a diagnosis than boys. And this is really important to be aware of because it means that many that need support will not get support and then might suffer in the long run. And this discrepancy is thought to, I guess, at least partially be dependent on differences in how ADHD presents. So girls are less likely to be like behaviorally disruptive. They tend to be quieter and like internalize their frustration, whereas instead of becoming kind of outwardly aggravated, 
that being said, all individuals without ADHD vary greatly. And I'm sure that teachers and parents will have a similar perception. I've worked with girls with ADHD who are more disruptive and I've worked with boys with ADHD who are more insular. So I would argue that we need to approach each individual as an individual. That's the most important thing. Lovely. Thank you. Now, what impact can neurodevelopmental disorders have on peer relationships and young people's self-esteem? So peer relationships can be quite difficult for young people with neurodevelopmental disorders to both like initiate in the first place and then maintain. So for young people with ADHD, they do tend to have social problems and it might be related to their challenges in regulating emotions or some have heightened sensitivity to criticism and rejection and this can be hard to manage. There is evidence to show that peer support does help. So setting up peer mentoring programmes, which a lot of schools do already, and encouraging them to participate in like extracurricular activities that they enjoy. I think the issues with self-esteem can sometimes come from expecting young people to mould or adapt to a certain practice rather than approaching a young person's difficulties from the perspective of like, okay, how can we break down this barrier for you? If I think of an example, children with developmental coordination disorder are characterised as having motor impairments. So this could be fine motor skills like writing with a pen or gross motor skills like running. But if this is not picked up on or supported, this can lead to all kinds of problems where young people are refusing to take part in sports and PE, for example, because they're embarrassed. And the evidence shows that this can then like cascade and lead to not only negative physical health outcomes from not participating in these things, but also less supportive relationships and minimal engagement in school. So the impact on self-esteem and related behaviours can be really detrimental if we don't adapt to support young people. And we know that in our experience, Catherine, I don't know if you've come across this, but sometimes parents can fear their child actually being labeled as neurodiverse and, and sometimes can even resist assessment, you know, by a clinician. Can you talk to us a little bit about those anxieties and, and what potentially you would say based on your expertise and knowledge to a parent who's in that particular position? Yeah, this can be really tricky. And I think this fear is completely understandable. Like all parents just want the best for their child, right? I think the first thing I would say is that the evidence shows that for young people who are late in receiving a diagnosis, they're less likely to receive the support that they need and more likely to experience later negative outcomes across the board. So poorer mental health, poorer academic outcomes, for example. And I'm definitely not saying that a label will like be the solution to this, but it might just be a step towards getting your child the support that they need to fulfill their potential. So I guess my advice would be to, to firstly sit down with your child's teacher and just find out exactly how they're currently managing at schools, what their relationships look like and how they think that this assessment will actually help. And then I would just try and learn a little bit more about the particular disorder or that particular label. And there's lots of free resources out there. So, for example, 
I'm not suggesting that parents need to go away and read lengthy academic journals. There's now resources that are like specifically designed for parents and teachers to support them. So a research team led by Sinead Rhodes at University of Edinburgh have just published their free resources called EPIC. And these are booklets that help with understanding of the strengths and difficulties of common neurodevelopmental disorders. And they have strategy suggestions as well. There's also the Centre for Educational Neuroscience. They've just published some videos that cover facts and myths of particular disorders. They could be really helpful. Another thing is that there are a lot of local support groups for parents and families that are usually free to attend. And they just offer a safe space for parents to talk about their worries, to get some advice from clinicians and also researchers. A lot of support groups will have researchers go and give a particular talk and you can ask them questions directly. So if you literally just Google, for example, ADHD support group and Southwest London, lots of different options that will come up and that can be a good source of support. Fantastic. Those are some wonderful websites that we will be finding and signposting parents to. Do you think that there's adequate teacher training, initial teacher training in these areas that we're discussing, Catherine? And if not, what would you add if you could to an ITT program that you think teachers should be aware of, should know, should understand about neurodevelopmental disorders? I think it's a bit tricky. And from my work with education practitioners, I think continuous professional development is what's really important and having sufficient time to do this. So practitioners, and by this I mean teachers, learning support staff, everyone working as educators already have like really limited budgets. They have day-to-day time constraints So they really need accessible and informative resources with practical suggestions. But I think there needs to be a combination of sufficient time from leadership for professional development and a prioritisation of supporting individual differences in this time, as well as more accessible and digestible resources from researchers, for example. So I think what's important is like the repeated going through this knowledge and like adapting depending on what we've learned as researchers and as educators. Now, you've mentioned the EPIC resources, the EPIC research. I think that program is led by Sinead Rhodes that you mentioned. And I'm aware of, you know, there are great charities, aren't there, in this area? The ADHD Foundation, there's lots of them. But what other books and resources could you and I talk about that would be of potential interest to educators? Yeah, so there are so many. I think that talks are a really good place to go, basically, because it's like the new and current research and researchers often give talks for places like the Centre for Educational Neuroscience that are really accessible and deliver the key information that you need to know. And I guess something good that came out of the lockdowns is that most talks, practically all talks, are now delivered online and uploaded to a website so that anyone can access them and they're free at any time. So as I mentioned, the Centre for Educational Neuroscience seminars are really good and accessible. There's also a Neurodiversity Masterclass series coming up that's hosted by the Institute of Neurodiversity Research, and that's going to be a series of talks from neurodiverse individuals and researchers on this topic. 
So that would be something really good to access. Sue Fletcher Watson, who's also has a team in Edinburgh, has conducted a huge project with educators and schools called Learning About Neurodiversity at School. And they've created together a free resource pack for teachers and students to learn about neurodiversity. And this is going to be published in spring 2022. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye out for that because it's like a evidence-based community and educator-informed resource that should hopefully be really useful. I'll, of course, have to plug my recent series on neurodevelopmental disorders in the classroom that I wrote for Bold. Essentially, I just really wanted to provide a summary of the evidence of what we know about specific neurodevelopmental disorders and how we can support individual differences in learning in the classroom. So each article focuses on either ADHD, autism or developmental coordination disorder. And I'd hope that they'd be quite a good starting point for a short summary and then you can go on to further reading from there. Lovely. Thank you. Now, how can the classroom and school environment be better adapted to ensure it's optimised for autistic children or those with ADHD or DCD, as you just mentioned? Yeah, so huge question. (laughs) But I think the answer can fall into kind of two categories. So the first is that there are practical specialised things that we can do in the classroom that are supported by evidence. So, for example, there's evidence to show that noisy visual classroom displays can be distracting for children with or without neurodevelopmental disorders compared to like more simple visual displays. The other way to think about it is thinking of ways we can provide universal provision. So something that will work for the whole class. So there are situations, of course, where extra specialised support is needed But many things we might do for a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder diagnosis would benefit other children in the class. And it also means that children that perhaps have not received a diagnosis are also supported. So this was kind of suggested by an early years practitioner I worked with for a recent article where I asked her how we can overcome barriers to supporting individual differences in the classroom. And she gave a really nice example of visual timetables. So lots of teachers, especially in the early years, use visual timetables. But we can also use this as a prompt for children that struggle to keep in mind potentially multiple activities at the same time. And also children who struggle when a routine is disrupted. So this can be a common symptom in autistic children. If they have their own visual timetable in front of them with just what's happening now, what's going to happen next, they can see exactly what's going to be happening and it can help them feel more secure and in control. This kind of echoes what we see in the literature. So there's little evidence to suggest that spending a lot of time training one skill like inhibition, for example, translates to learning in maths, for example. So By incorporating some practices into planning for the whole class, this might help children with their learning, but it's also much more manageable for teachers. Lovely. Those are some super tips. Thank you so much, Catherine. What common classroom misconceptions in particular about ADHD would you like teachers to be more aware of? I'm asking this question because in my own sort of practice and experience, 
It's a question that gets asked a lot by teachers about classroom behavior, disruption, some of the characteristics of ADHD and how they might emerge in that classroom setting. And I just wanted to get your take on that. Thank you. Yeah, I think you kind of, yeah, hit the nail on the head there. I think sometimes there's the misconception of ADHD that it's something, it's like a naughty child thing that a child will grow out of or they just need to try harder to concentrate in class. But the evidence shows that many young people continue to present with ADHD throughout their lives. And also, yes, as they get older, ADHD symptoms might lessen, but this is likely because individuals have found like coping and management strategies that work for them, that help them engage in classroom learning, for example. So I think it's being aware that this is not the case. And what's important is to focus more on, okay, what is going to help this child fulfill their potential? What strategies can we use? And how can we adapt the classroom to work in that way rather than trying to push children along with like strategies that are just not working for them? And I like your idea of really starting with that particular child. And it's about optimizing what's right for them, knowing them well, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Now, we've talked about the classroom. What about extracurricular activities or curricular activities like sport, music, drama? How can we ensure that those activities are as inclusive as possible for neurodiverse students? Yeah, I think this, again, comes back to like communicating with the young person. They need to feel heard. They need to feel like they have some control over their day. Kind of as we've touched on before, like some behaviours might be misinterpreted as bad behaviour. For example, refusing to take part in sports if you have motor difficulties. But if we can talk to that young person about what they need and adapt slightly, this might just really help. It could be something as simple as allowing that child or young person to work with a friend that they trust in that sports class or music or whatever it is. This might help them feel more included. And encouraging participation in ways that feel manageable for that young person. If they don't want to do like after school football, for example, what kind of activity might they participate in? So it's just about opening up the conversation and communicating with that young person so that they feel heard and we can integrate that into our practice. And in terms of peer relationships, I know it's a very wide question, but again, what do you think schools could do to support children who are autistic, who have ADHD or other neurodevelopmental disorders to have the connections that they wish to have um, socially? I think a good place to start is adopting an approach that neurodiversity is the norm So neurodiversity is essentially the suggestion that we all have strengths and difficulties and as individuals, rather than there being a specific norm that people differentiate from. So as an important starting point for young people to learn to be understanding and open to embracing their differences, I think it's important to start using this language and encourage this way of thinking. So again, the learning about neurodiversity at school resources should be particularly useful with this. But it's opening up this conversation to try and understand that we 
are all different and we all have strengths and we all have difficulties. That's right. So, and it's, I love your idea that constantly throughout the interview, you're referring to young people's voice and asking Mm. young people themselves and them having agency, you know, within all of these situations at school. So I think those are very important points to sort of bring out again. In terms of children's emotional, academic and digital resilience, which is something we talk a lot about within Tooled Up Education, what would you say, particularly for children with ADHD, what what is it that we need to pay attention to there that would be important? Okay, so yeah, this is really important to consider and we definitely need some more research in this area. So in terms of how it's kind of been looked at in ADHD, We can maybe think about this in terms of protective factors. So this could be at the individual level, so like self-esteem, motivation. Also at the social level, like social acceptance, positive school experiences. And at the family level, so this is things like caregiver acceptance and family warmth. So there's not much research in this area, so it does need further investigation. But some longitudinal studies have shown that social acceptance can help buffer against later depressive symptoms and poor academic outcomes. So it appears that the social level is quite important. So this is not to say that individual factors are not important. We, of course, need to support coping strategies and self-esteem, for example, in young people with ADHD. But it implies that this might not be enough. And we need to think in terms of the social network and the school environment to understand the whole picture and really support young people with ADHD. Lovely. Well, thank you for answering all of our questions and so fluently. And there are so many tips and resources and things that you've signposted educators and parents to in that podcast. So thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Bates. Thank you for having me. I hope they are useful. So Catherine, tell us just finally, how can people stay in touch with you and your research? How can they keep abreast of what you're doing? So you can follow me on Twitter at CatherineBates47. Also keep an eye out on bold.expert for my articles on learning and development. Lovely. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to telling the world about your research and the answers that you've given today. So thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.